All right. Well, I'd like to thank those of you that are tuned in live. I'd like to thank those of you that are here at the church. And what I'd like to do before I get into my lecture this evening, God's past judgment is open us with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together to rightly divide your word, Lord, that we know your spirit makes possible and uh, all that you have done to make possible all things that lead to life and godliness, Lord. We thank you for and We give you all the praise and glory. We do ask that you go ahead of me in this lecture, that my words would be your words, that I would bring glory to you by teaching the saints your truth in clarity, Lord, so that you would be glorified and we would be edified by your truth. Uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for revealing all these things to us. Thank you for the things that you conceal, and thank you for the things that you reveal. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So tonight's lecture is entitled, God's Past Judgment. And the concept of God's judgment is an integral part of Scripture. Many aspects of theology lead into getting an understanding of judgment, and many aspects flow out of having a proper understanding of judgment. And of course, it switches up regarding those who misunderstand judgment. Many things may lead into misunderstanding judgment, and of course, if you have a faulty understanding of judgment, many things may flow from that faulty understanding. Judgment, as a term, is, is mentioned 293 times in Scripture. Judgments, plural, is mentioned 126. The Hebrew word that is most used for the term judgment in Scripture is the Hebrew word misfat. Misfat means judgment, order, regulations, verdict, and so many other synonyms that would go along with those phrases already expressed. Again, judgment is mentioned in different contexts. It's found in many different narratives. And it is used by many different names or expressed by different names and uh, has many different surrounding details or context as you go through uh, scriptures. So tonight, what we are specifically doing is looking at the eschatological judgment, or what is referred to as the last judgment, or in the Hebrew, the Yom HaDin. I will be affirming and detailing the preterist understanding of judgment day. Many of you know I was slated to participate in a debate with Joel Sexton in August of 2018 regarding the preterist view of judgment, and he has since backed out of participating in said debate. However, I still found validity to his inquiring into a properly detailed view of God's judgment from the preterist understanding. Joel Sexton had said that there were few, if any, studies on the preterist view of judgment to be found. I'm actually in agreement with that. As I did the necessary study and preparation for this lecture, I found very minimal regarding the judgment as expressed through articles and teachings by preterists. Joel Sexton asked assertively, which prompted my study, quote, when did those under God's wrath experience God's wrath on the day of wrath, as per Romans 2.5? When did all unbelievers, not just in Judea, but all over the empire, experience the wrath to come upon all ungodly men and unbelievers, as per Romans 1.18? So, in starting a sort of affirmative, since I won't be debating, I'll just be offering an affirmative regarding God's past judgment, I want to say a couple things. The first thing is that if we want to understand 
the essence or the heart of judgment. I would direct this to the Psalms. The Psalms truly express the heart of judgment. Matter of fact, the Psalms are written by a man who was said to be a man after God's own heart. And you can see that in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Isaiah 61, 8 tells us that the Lord loves judgment. In the book of Job, Job 32, verses 8 through 9 to be exact, we read that it is not a matter of age that we would come to an understanding of judgment, but by way of the Spirit of God that gives understanding. We see this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And most notable, we see this with Solomon. Solomon's request in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 and 28, as well as emphasized in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, is that he would require wisdom rather than wealth. Wisdom of God's judgment rather than the riches of this world. We see this also in the goal of Proverbs, the, the book of Proverbs, is to give insight on judgment as noted in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 3. You also see this in Proverbs 21, verses 2 through 3. And lastly, eternal judgment is listed among the foundational things that we must understand and that we must move past onto maturity in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. Again, I make mention of the necessary study that goes into this topic. I looked up every verse pertaining to judge, judges, judges, judgment, and judgments, as well as wrath, to be found in the scriptures. This offered up quite the study into the various contexts of judgment. That's the chart I have handed out this evening. I'll make available on the internet as well. That chart that you're holding has the five W's and the one H of judgment. What essentially I would say is the context of judgment. The what, in this order, the why, the who, the where, the when, and the how of judgment. And we're going to be taking a look at that here in a moment. I firmly believe that if you understand what I call the five W's and the one H, that you will gain a healthy contextual understanding of judgment. From the outset, I want to point out that in my teachings tonight, you will notice two major themes, narrative theology and preterism. Narrative theology is interested in developing the story, or narrative being made known through the scriptures. With less emphasis on proof texting, narrative theology challenges the Bible student to bring all the details into a bigger picture. And preterism is the charge that all the prophetic events found in Scripture in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament in and through Jesus Christ have been fulfilled. All jots and tittles of prophecy pointed to the transition of covenant and the glorious new reality that has been provided not only for the saints in Christ, but also for the dead ones of the old covenant that awaited vengeance, victory, and the rewards through faith. We read about them in Hebrews chapter 11. The preterists point out that the New Testament details concerning the Lord coming in judgment to judge the living and the dead are to be understood through a familiarity with the purpose of and points made in the Law and the Prophets and found their fulfillment in the first century end of the age. I will share more about those necessary notions tonight. All of this seems to be perfectly in line with how the Apostle Paul made known the Gospel. In Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul says that he believes, according to this way that they call a sect, he believes all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets. 
worshiping the God of his fathers, making note of the fact that the resurrection of the dead that he preached is found in the law and the prophets. Acts chapter 26, verses 21 through 23, the Apostle Paul says that he says nothing other than that which is revealed in the law and the prophets, talking about Christ must suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 28, verses 21 through 24, we read the Apostle Paul talking to the men of Judea, and it says that he testified to them about the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And he did this from morning to evening. And then there were some that were persuaded and some that disbelieved. So I make mention of that because the gospel finds its place in the law and the prophets. Whatever we make note of in the New Testament must be found in the Old Testament. That is the proclamation of the gospel. And also, no matter how much we can emphasize the law and the prophets and we can bring things into context, as the Apostle Paul did there in Acts chapter 28, there will be some who will believe and there will simply be some who won't. So I want to direct you to take a look at that chart that I've provided, the five W's in the 1H chart. And we're going to pick a text. Can I ask you to look at that chart and pick a text out of the what? Revelation 11.18. Now, we're talking about the what of judgment here. What are we talking about? When you go to Revelation chapter 11... Verse 18. John. John 11? Oh, John 11. Oh, Revelation 11, 18. And we read, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that should be judged, and that thou shalt give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great, and that you should destroy them which destroy the earth. So that's what we're talking about here tonight. We're talking about when was this wrath revealed, this time of judgment, this time of the resurrection of the dead, and God destroying those who destroy the earth. Then we move on to the why. And if I may, I'm going to pick a Psalm chapter 33, verses 4 through 5, um, for our why. Again, Psalms express the heart of worship. All right. Psalm chapter 33, verses 4 through 5. Sorry about that. For the word of the Lord is right, and all of his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So why are we talking about this? Because the Lord loves righteousness and judgment. And it's important for us as the people of God to talk about that which the Lord loves. Who? I'll go ahead and make mention of a text there. Psalm 147, verses 9 through 20, talks about God gave his oracles, his judgments, to his people, to Jacob. To no other nation did he make them known. We're going to be talking about that a bit tonight. Where, you'll see a similar theme as you go through the verses there, in where, when, which is actually part of this discussion this evening, and you'll see, uh, I'll direct you to time, time texts and time statements that are found in the scripture, and then how. And that's going to be important for us to get an understanding of this evening. And if I may, take us to a text. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.10 says that the Lord makes his judgments known from heaven. 
We see also in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, an interesting correlation that when Jesus was taken into heaven by way of the clouds, the angels appeared to Jesus' disciples and they say to them, the same way you see him go into heaven, remember he went into heaven in a cloud, you will see him come back from heaven, or you will see him come from heaven. And uh, talking about the coming of the Lord in clouds. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well this evening. So again, I would assert that this five W's and one H gives us context to God's judgment. Prayerfully, we can agree that we are not at liberty to develop mental images and concepts of our own that are foreign to the text of Scripture and how the original audience would have understood the details. Surely we understand that 2,000 years has a way of entirely changing and reshaping a perspective or a culture, placing emphasis on understanding the detail, details from the original audience's perspective is called audience relevance. If and when we are honest with ourselves, we can plainly admit that much of our perspective on spirituality and theology has been influenced by, fantasticized by, and given over to Hollywood. I would assert that rather than having a healthy conceptual spirituality shaped by God's truth, we have welcomed and accepted a perspective of Judgment Day that would make for a great movie or a book. Peter at the Golden Gate, everyone standing before a rather, rather large throne, everyone being forced to bow to King Jesus, all of that makes things exciting. However, those things are not necessarily true. You know, I was there. I believed it. I not only believed it, I taught it and wrote about it. I remember a blog I wrote a while back about Judgment Day. I spoke of a dream or what I had understood to be a vision about my friends, my foes, and Judgment Day. And what was ironic about this vision was that I didn't share it in a way that I was happy to see my enemies be judged. Again, there's a proverb about that, to not be happy about seeing your enemies judged, happy about the reward you receive from the judgment. However, I wouldn't say that we should be happy about seeing our enemies judged. And here I was standing before the throne of God, how I envisioned it, of course. And I'm standing there, and my friends and my enemies and my wife were all standing there with me. And I remember being so concerned and so worried and so anxious. Had I done everything that I could to make sure my friends would be able to uh, at least have an honest opportunity before the judgment throne of God? Talk about traumatizing. I would sit there and I would wonder, and, and again, that influenced my... Uh, my understanding of the gospel, it influenced my way of telling the gospel. You would imagine it was very much in haste. I wanted to make sure everybody knew about the limited amount of knowledge I had about Jesus. However, I thought I had wealth of knowledge. That actually leads me to my next point here. Recently at the Preterist Program Weekend, Mr. Larry Siegel of Fulfilled Dynamics, he gave a lecture, and in that lecture, he shared the four stages of understanding. And he said the four stages were expectation, alteration, revelation, and transformation. And if you think about it, that's important because me, here I was, I had this expectation of judgment. And uh, it was based upon my, my zeal for God. However, it wasn't based upon a knowledge of God or the truth of God. So when I received a little bit more information about the judgment of God, it altered my view. And uh, I would dare to say that that alteration has continued to this day. Since I have altered my expectations, 
effectively to not lean upon my own understanding, but rather to search the scriptures, to study to show myself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, to prove all things, developing what we here at the Blue Point Bible Church refer to as a thinking faith, I have truly gained revelation and transformation in so many areas, not only in my life, but in my understanding, especially as I seek to rightly apply audience relevance and to not be content with proof texting and doctrinal hobby horses. Hobby horses. There we go. If you don't know what those are, proof texting is when you take a bunch of Bible verses and you try to mesh them all together to uh, make your point, or even just to borrow a Bible verse to make your point. However, you're ripping it out of its context. You're proof texting. You're providing a, ver- a text as proof rather than allowing the full story or the full narrative to convey that truth. Um, more often than not, the scriptures are used out of context when you're proof texting. And doctrinal hobby horsing is when you take certain pet doctrines, you know, you, you have these certain doctrines you love and you just spend all of your time talking about them in contrast to having a narrative understanding and being honest with truths as, as you come to them, as you study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. Simply put, Scripture requires honest study. For example, consider the following verses regarding Jesus Christ's ministry. In John chapter 12, verses 47 to 48, we read that Jesus Christ did not come for judgment. Then in John chapter 5, verse 22, we read that Jesus Christ did come for judgment. Then in John chapter 9, verse 39, we read that judgment had been given to Jesus for him to render judgment. So they seem to be contradicting. However, what this should remind us of, and any honest Bible student or any knowledgeable Bible student would know, that you have to go to the context. You have to read the surrounding details to understand the different context of what is being said in those different points. I'll tell you, I'm not content with providing easy answers. I believe much of my calling is to teach and to challenge the saints to study for themselves. That's why I've written books in the way that I have. That's why you have a handout of a multitude of verses this evening, so that you will do the study to gain a healthy understanding of God's past judgment. As you develop a narrative understanding of the things outlined in Scripture, A study that requires developing timetables of the writings. You know, you want to know when these writings were written. You want to know the historical context, when they were written, what they were written about. Uh, A bit of cultural background will surely help you gaining a healthy understanding. Consistently reading, studying, and memorizing different aspects of Scripture will help you gain a narrative understanding. And when you do this, you will truly find yourself blessed. You know, rather than being right and wrong in my understanding, I have become content with the journey of rightly dividing the word of truth, of being honest and gaining more and more understanding as I seek the Lord. I say that because I want to affirm my understanding. I want to affirm the fact that it would seem that a contextual and narrative understanding of the Scriptures highlights God's judgment to be consistently established upon historical events. One biblical commentator said, quote, Scripture is often occupied with actualizing earlier prophetic words for the sake of conceptualizing God's consolation and judgments for his people. So to me, all of that needs to be taken into consideration when we establish context of God's judgment. And all of that lends to understanding a contextual past understanding of God's judgment. So I want to move us into talking a little bit about thematic patterns. I would argue that it is important to 
pay attention to thematic patterns as we go through studying the scriptures. These are also referred to as motifs or types and antitypes. Regarding judgment, the, mo- the Exodus motif is beautiful when understood and applied. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, we have God telling Abraham a prophecy concerning his generation. Generations from him, they will be taken into bondage in Egypt, and it will all be done for the glory of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 6 through Exodus chapter 32, we read that story of God delivering his people from the Exodus, and we read about the judgments that he made known in that Exodus, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. Numbers 33-4, we see Moses reminds Israel of their exodus from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, we see again Moses reminding Israel of their deliverance from Egypt. Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 20 reminds Israel of their exodus from Egypt. And sure enough, the apostle Paul, in talking about the details of the last day, the end of the age, says that the exodus was an example for those upon whom the end of the age had come. We have been thinking through Exodus here in our sermons at the Blue Point Bible Church. In two or more recent sermons, in two of the more recent sermons, we have taken a look at the setting of the plagues and how they were brought against the Pharaoh in Egypt. And I had highlighted some points regarding God's judgment. I see six things being made known through those plagues. And those six things, if you look at Exodus chapter 7 through 11, they are, He is the Lord. He is the Lord and there is none beside Him. He is the Lord in the midst of the earth. He is the Lord and the earth is his. He gives favor to his people and makes a distinction between them and others. And he multiplies his wonders in the land. Again, those six things are made known through God's judgments, through the plagues. And I would assert that those six things are made known in the first century through the second exodus that you find in the New Testament. And those six things are God's judgment being made known and clear. There's so much that can be said and studied in regards to the Exodus motif as found in the New Testament, especially pertaining to gaining an understanding of God's past judgment. Lately, I have been making mention of Daniel Rogers' website, labornotinvain.com, where you can find an excellent series of teachings on the second Exodus. Of course, I encourage you all to continue listening to our sermons going through Exodus as we continue thinking through the scriptures here at the Blue Point Bible Church. The next thing I want to highlight is context. Simply put, yet widely ignored, is the fact that many of the texts speaking about God's judgment offer insights regarding the timing of their fulfillment. For example, the judgments made known in Matthew chapter 13 is said to happen at the end of the age. When you go over to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, you see that the coming of the Lord, judgment, destruction of the temple, and the end of the age are all simultaneous. So then God's judgment would be made known at the destruction of the temple, which was the end of the age. The coming of the Lord in judgment to give rewards, as Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 16, happened while some standing in front of him were alive. The text demands that. And of course, the last day judgment found in Matthew chapter 23 through 26 found its fulfillment in that generation, as per the text, Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. All of this will be fulfilled within this generation. We cannot divide the texts that are naturally together. Interestingly enough, if one does the concordance study, looking up all the correlating verses pertaining to judgment according to what you had, been do- according to what you had done, 
you'll notice that this is a phrase that was used to encourage those under the law of Moses. It's all throughout the scriptures. The law of Moses and that temple system, that old covenant, if you will, was growing old and was ready to vanish away in the first century. This is noticed in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. All of that was coming to a soon end. The preterist, as I am, would point out that the last day's judgment was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, wherein the living and the dead were judged in accordance with the context and time statements of Scripture. It was in that context that every man was rewarded according to what he had done. While the corporate nature of God's judgment, time, reason, and application upon the holy place and the holy city is unfortunately missed and misunderstood by many Christians today, it was readily understood by the original audience. In the book of Daniel, the shattering of the power of the holy people is seen as the time of judgment of the living and the resurrection of the dead, which correlates with Jesus' point in Matthew chapters 23 through 26. And not to mention the book of Revelation which when rightly understood speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem and the establishment of the kingdom of God in and through the new covenant, the new Jerusalem, which came down out of heaven from God. Another interesting time text is that Daniel was told to seal up his prophecies as the time was far off, which turned out to be about 500 years. John, in his writing of Revelation, was told not to seal up the prophecies because the time was soon. By proxy of this correlation, a time text for the fulfillment of the details found in the book of Revelation, which surely includes Judgment Day, would have been within 500 years. When looking at the other time text, it becomes clear that it was much sooner than that. Truly at hand, about to happen, at the door of the first century. My point is this. When you understand the context, when you look at and examine the thematic patterns that are made throughout the scriptures, and you pay attention and you do not ignore the time texts that are found in the scriptures, you can gain a healthy understanding of God's past judgment. So what happened in AD 70? What is this whole destruction of Jerusalem? And why do the preterists place emphasis upon this point? When we come to identify the first century generation as the terminal generation, the generation in which all things that were written found their fulfillment, you see this in Luke 21, 22, we realize that there is so much to study about and to say about the destruction of Jerusalem and how it applies to our lives in Christ. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24:14 was the destruction of Jerusalem. The natural judgment, as would be revealed on earth, took place in Jerusalem, and of course in the heavenlies, the spiritual judgment of vengeance and rewards upon the dead ones. Spending some time understanding how God made his judgments known throughout the scriptures is advantageous to this study. I would assert that God made his judgments known from heaven, usually through earthly happenings, be they plagues or invading armies. Matter of fact, let's take a look at Luke 21, verses 20 through 24, and let Jesus speak for himself. Jesus says this, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of the city get out, and let them that are in the country not enter the city. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things that are written may be fulfilled. But woe to them that are with child, and them that give suck in those days. For great will be the distress in the land and the wrath upon this people. 
and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. When it comes to judgment, that's the image we must have in our head, not what we have conjured up or what Hollywood has produced. Matter of fact, please allow me to share some other biblical insights and some historical remarks regarding, God, regarding God's past judgment that I am studying through regarding the details of the final judgment as made clear in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. In our reading of Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, we read about the coming of the Lord, and it's the judgment and the wrath as noted in verse 10 of that same chapter. And it's alluding to the judgment that was prophesied by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 38. This is the same judgment that was spoken by Jesus Christ and recorded in Matthew chapter 23. When we look at those texts and we look at all the imagery that's seen there, sure enough, following Pentecost in A.D. 66, it is first recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus in his writing, War of the Jews, that at that feast which we call Pentecost, the priests were going by night into the inner temple. They felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard the sound of a great multitude saying, let us remove from here. Sure enough, this correlates to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, where it says, quote, And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the sound of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of a host. This was God leaving the temple. Sure enough, this is also recorded by Roman historian Tacitus, who, speaking about this historical event, uh, historical event, wrote, A sudden lightning flashed from the clouds, lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. In the same instance came a rushing tumult of their departure. This would seem to be a declaration that God's presence was leaving the temple before its destruction. Understanding this as a passport of event has led some to ask, who was judged in AD 70? And that is a valid question and requires some background. First off, judgments were given to his people. Again, that will be noted as you go through the who of that chart I have handed out. In, in life, the judgments were made known to his people through the law. In death, the people were preserved in Sheol to await their hope of resurrection. That was a promise of their having the judgment of God, being the people of God. The Gentiles were in the world without hope and without God. They were the nations that the truth of God, the judgment of God, had not been made known to. They were wandering in ignorance, in nothingness. And two proof texts, if we're going to use proof text I can bring up, would be Psalm chapter 147, verses 19 through 20, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, through his ministry, he reproved the living. And it's important to take notice that in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 15, specifically Jesus says that he did not come to any other than those who are lost out tribes of Israel. Jesus came to his people, Israel, to reprove them and to resurrect the dead ones of that covenant and to call those of the spirit of Jew and Gentile to a time of repentance. See this in Acts chapter 13. In Romans chapters 9 and 15, we see that the Gentiles have been brought to 
understand the fulfillment of Jewish promises, Jewish covenant, the transition of the covenant, if you will. When we understand those details, and we, we go over to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, or what has been called the great white throne judgment in theological circles, we see that the judgment the judgment in A.D. 70, this Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, white, great white throne judgment, correlates to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 of course, which is an unbroken discourse from Matthew chapter 23 to 26, bringing judgment upon Jerusalem, declaring judgment upon the temple, using imagery of virgins and sheep and goats. This also cross-references to Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 and 28, where we read that this judgment would happen while some standing in front of Jesus Christ would be alive. And also this cross-references to Revelation chapter 14, which I highlighted for you in a moment. And sure enough, I'll be speaking, upon, speaking on on August 4th at 11 a.m. at the Lakeshore Church of Christ in South Haven, Michigan. It's the judgment according to what they had done. This is judgment of people under law. This judgment would have a lasting effect upon the people of God. Again, as Daniel chapter 12 points out, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Matter of fact, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20. You see, here in Revelation chapter 20, we see these books are opened. And again, this should bring us right back to Daniel chapter 12. This is the judgment that would happen to the people of God when the power of the holy people was shattered. This is the destruction of the temple. And this judgment is applied to the people under the law because to them belong the judgments of God. This text here in Revelation chapter 20, as we also see in Daniel chapter 12, is full of temple imagery. It's covenant language. Covenant people would have understood covenant language much more than people 2,000 years removed. And the sea, for example, when we think of the sea, we think of the ocean. However, here, the sea, we see in the book of Kings that King Ahaz moved the sea, and nobody believes that he moved the actual physical sea. The sea was used as a phrase for the wash basin in the temple. This is where you would uh, purify yourself, represented things that were being purified of, things that were cast out, so to speak. The sea are those people within the people of God that had been cast out of the community. They had been thrown over the walls. The sea means that everybody's taking part in this judgment. And then it reminds them death and hell, which is old covenant death and Sheol. Those that had been bound up by old covenant death and Sheol, they would take part in this judgment as well. It's basically saying everybody, all of the people of God are taking part in this judgment. We see the lake of fire, which is a phrase for destruction. And then it talks about the second death. And this is important because it's important to take notice of, as Dr. Kelly Nelson Burks had pointed out, that the white, great white throne judgment is not for Christians. Because this is for those that experienced the first death. The first death are those that are under law. Covenant death, that is, being, that is the theme pretty much from Genesis to Revelation, it plagued the people of God. Death comes by sin, and sin comes by way of the law. Just sin ultimately is a transgression of the law. The second death would be now you're not going to have that first death where you're going to die and go to Sheol or Hades. No, now the second death means there's no hope. It was appointed to all men to die once, not twice, and then have judgment. Once, and then have judgment, as we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Now condemnation is on your own head. There's no more chance to go to Sheol and to await judgment by faith. God's judgment was not a far-off event. Rather, it's an every moment, every day concept in the lives of the people of God. 
yes, foreign to us. But as I believe I have outlined, and I know Scripture makes clear, this was not foreign to the original audience. Matter of fact, tomorrow evening at sundown is the commemoration of Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of Av is the day that the temple fell in the first time, 586 B.C., at the hands of the Babylonians. And then sure enough, on the same day, as if God wasn't trying to make something very clear, the same day, the ninth of Av in A.D. 70, uh, we've seen the destruction of the temple by way of the Romans. So both of these are seen as a judgment of God. The Jews understood this. This you know, identifies their community. That's why they celebrate this and they commemorate these dates. Do they understand the significance upon this and their redemption and their salvation? The Protoist community walks worthy of that as well. We've noted that while, yes, this was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, it also revealed a glorious reality for the saints, which we're going to be making mention of as I go through my lecture this evening. The Protoist community has marked that Tisha B'Av to be Parousia Day or New Jerusalem Day because, yes, it brought judgment upon one people, but it brought victory to another. It brought vengeance and destruction upon God's adversaries, but it brought victory and glory to God's people. This seems to be what Jesus Christ was making clear in John 3, 18 through 21. Quote, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he that believes not in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is condemnation. That light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither does he come to the light. Let, unless his deeds should be reproved. But he that does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. However, Christ also came to bring forth judgment that was necessary by way of the old covenant, not just the judgment of God to be active in a believer's life, but the judgment that was necessary as per the old covenant, what we were just talking about with Daniel chapter 12. Jesus Christ came to fulfill them, not defer them or put them off. The judgment that was at that day was required to bring vengeance upon those who persecuted God's people, especially those who killed his son. Not only is this spoken about in the, quote, according to their works language, which I've already noted is talking about the law, also we see another phrase, every knee shall bow. This is language that is used in Romans 14.11 as well as Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. This is a citation of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 23. And you know, it's important when you want to get an understanding of what's going on there, what knees shall bow, whether this is talking about all men universally or if it's talking about the people of God, which I will assert, it's important to read Isaiah chapter 42, verses 17 to 25 to gain context in regards to what's happening there in verse 23. Those who bow are the people of God. They're Israel. It's a privilege to bow before our Lord. We know his judgments. We have his judgments. We bow before him and humble ourselves before him. This is not the case of all men being forced to bow before King Jesus. Again, that makes for great movies. It's not good theology. The destruction of Jerusalem fulfilled and revealed the judgment of God. This is seen by a lot of scholars, just not entirely. Matter of fact, two scholars I'll make mention of here would be Kenneth Gentry and N.T. Wright. Kenneth Gentry, in his book, He Shall Have Dominion, said that the significance of the loss of the temple stands as the most dramatic, redemptive, historical outcome of the Roman Jewish War. N.T. Wright said the whole story of judgment for those who had not followed Jesus and the vindication for those who had 
is summed up in the cryptic but frequently repeated phrase, the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. In other words, when the great tribulation came on Israel, those who had followed Jesus would be delivered. And that would be the sign that Jesus had been in the right. And that, in consequence, they had been right in following him. The destruction of Jerusalem, on the one hand, and the rescue of the disciples on the other, would be the vindication of what Jesus had been saying throughout his entire ministry. The judgment of God being made known through past events, through AD 70 judgment, has been highlighted by Dr. Kelly Nelson Burke as the eternal now of God. In some of his teachings on this topic, Dr. Don K. Preston of the Preterist Research Institute has referred to this as representative judgment, which he said is a common concept because it's related to the Hebraic concept of a corporate identity. It is an exegetically confirmed concept. Ultimately, as Dr. Preston has noted, it is failing to grasp this fundamental Hebraic idea that leads to an overemphasis on things such as, well, when did all people, or when did Rome, or Armenia, or Syria get judged? Ultimately, this is a misguided understanding. Unfortunately, many have allowed a misplaced hope to lead them even more forward in regards to the topic of judgment. Not only a Hollywood style leaning upon my own misunderstanding approach, but now there's a desire to put trust in historic creeds of the church. Misplaced hope should remind many of the books Sam Frost had written a few years back about exactly that, a misplaced trust in creeds and councils. Yes, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Augsburg Confession, and the Westminster Confession, to name a few, assert a yet future judgment and resurrection. However, all of these details are put together by so many different camps in so many different ways that it is not only depressing, but it should redirect any honest Bible student back to the scriptures and to the concept of audience relevance. I do, however, look to publish a resource to accompany some of the other resources that are out there that have noted church error in the areas of eschatology and uh, would lead us to better understand why the historic church had went astray in these understandings. Again, this is including but not limited to judgment of the living and the dead. So let's talk about some problems with a displaced and deferred judgment, what I'm going to call futurism. Displaced and deferred judgment. Obviously, the first thing that would come to mind is what the book of Proverbs says. It says that a deferred hope makes the heart sick. And preferably, that's not what we're trying to do by way of the gospel, is giving people an extended hope. But rather... A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. That's what I'm urging people to tell it. A longing that has been fulfilled, a hope that has been realized. Offering a tree of life. The next thing would be Joel Sexton's assertion about Romans chapters 1 through 2 and the judgment of all men. Well, simply put, the verse doesn't say what he wants it to say. Joel wants to say that Romans chapter 1 through 2 is speaking about judgment upon everybody. That there's one day there has to be this great day of judgment that everybody will be judged. Not only is the concept foreign to the scripture, it's, it's not found in Romans chapters 1 through 2. Romans chapters 1 through 2 is God's judgment upon those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And again, if you go back to that chart that I had given you, and you go through the who's of judgment, you'll see that his judgment had been given to his people. 
I also found an article by Brian Schwartley. He's written quite a few articles to be antagonistic to the full preterist view, and he has an article entitled The Final Judgment. And in that, he says that people confuse personal, historical, and partial judgments in history with the final judgment at the end of history. He also goes on to note that the language between those personal, historical, and partial judgments in history is similar to the language that he is trying to assert that points out Christ's second bodily change and final judgment that happens at the end of time. The problem is with the verses he uses. I've already made some points regarding Matthew chapter 13. Um, you know, we could go on and on about the verses he brought up. Um, they're problematic because they're verses that are used by preterists to assert a first century judgment. So we're all using the same verses to assert different things here. One of us has to require audience relevance rather than creed. The second problem is that the same problem that we see with Joel Sexton's position is that it's what he requires by way of his understanding, that there has to be a judgment at the end of history, which is far in the scripture. I do not see it. And then, of course, as was evident by reading the article, um, Mr. Swartley depends upon people's ignorance that they don't know the different perspectives that are out there and how divided all these views in theology truly are. I see futurism relying upon that a lot and not wanting people to understand how confused eschatology truly is. It's not a monolithic understanding. It's not offered by anybody. So the futurist view, the reason why it's a problem is because it ignores context, it ignores thematic patterns, and it ignores context, very simply put. As I had said to Joel Sexton about judgment before, and now I will affirm and assert, he seems to completely miss the thematic expressions of judgment as revealed in the Old and New Testament. The Exodus typology found all throughout the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus Christ regarding what he was doing in and through his called out ones gives us the beautiful pattern of the manifested judgment of God. Bill Preterism, even more specifically the corporate body view, not only seems to give us the most contextually and scripturally supported view of God's judgment, it also lends to establishing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I have offered up tonight is a contextual view of God's judgment. I've sought to affirm the preterist understanding of the past final judgment as bolstered by Hebraic understanding and offered up through the law and the prophets. I also sought to highlight some of the problems with a future deferred hope or future deferred judgment. And now we will end with some points regarding how we shall internalize and apply God's past judgment. I must say at the, as we come to a close here, I rather appreciate Dr. Don K. Preston's article series regarding the gospel and the destruction of Jerusalem. I would encourage you to check it out. In one of those articles, he notes, what Peter was doing in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, Don says he was identifying the true Israel, the true people of God, as those who accepted Jesus Christ. But notice that he warned his audience that those who ex refuse to accept Jesus Christ, quote, shall be every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Those rejecting Jesus would be utterly destroyed which of course happened in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But on the other side of the coin, it meant that with the destruction of the old people, the true people of God were revealed. The sons of God were manifested. 
just as Paul predicted in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. We read that creation was longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. In the mindset of the ancient world, nothing could have been made more clear when identifying the true people than the destruction of the city of the old people. AD 70 truly is the manifestation of the sons of God. Truly is the vindication of the saints. A future judgment is not needed in the life of a Christian. We, as Israel was supposed to, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, carry God's judgments with us. As the apostle remarked, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Those who believe in accomplished judgment leads to deism, universalism, and or antinomianism need to go back and understand what it means to be in Christ. Not to mention how all throughout the scripture the judgments of God were historically known and contemporarily applied. As for those who are outside of Jesus Christ, picture we get from Revelation chapters 21 through 22, they are condemned. They don't have victory. They don't walk in life and in godliness. And they suffer loss. Their condemnation is upon their own head. They are identified by their sin because they have not put on the robes of Christ's righteousness. As 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13 cites, as to those outside, God judges. Don Freston has said it, and I'll say it again. It's high time and past to recover the power of the gospel of the kingdom and the end of the old covenant world. That event was the manifestation of the sons of God and irrefutable, undeniable vindication of Jesus as the son of God was made known in AD 70. Jesus himself pointed to that event as the sign of his presence, the sign that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. It is time that the modern church begins once again to proclaim that message of victory, of vindication, of identification, and of glorification. Amen and amen. To drive the message home tonight concerning the glorious vindication and providence we have through God's past judgment, I'd like to share some encouraging and God-glorifying thoughts shared by a brother in Christ concerning the Christian's flight to Pella, thereby avoiding the calamities that overtook Jerusalem in AD 70. You see, the Christians who fled to Pella were not simply running for their lives. Approximately 37 years removed from the blessed sermons of their Lord Jesus Christ, these people were holding on to a faith that had been attacked, persecuted, and doubted throughout the entire world. Though the Christian kept their faith, and the Christian faith continued to grow, the Christians of Jewish descent living in the capital city of Jerusalem were faced with daily torment by seeing the temple, by the laws of the temple, and its leaders who sought their lives. Their battle was not just against men who sought to kill them physically. It was truly a matter of heart. Their doubt, their fears, their concerns. They needed to keep the faith that their Messiah fulfilled the law and would soon come to destroy those who held the law above God. The zealous Jews who wanted the death of these few 
held the power. The rival of these Christians, and even Christianity, rested in the faithfulness of Christ to do what he said he would do, when he said he would do it. So again, imagine your faith being justified, vindicated, and carried out right before your eyes. You may leave with nothing. You might have had even the closest relatives leave the faith and get swept up in the Zionist rebellion. But you have had your soul vindicated. Christ destroyed the wicked in the fires of AD 70. While you observed this vindication and showed to the entire world once and for all that the law held no power. The man who proclaimed himself as the Son of God was for real. His victory was complete and his word was true. He really is the resurrection and the life. He really did crush the head of Satan and defeat death. Everything he said must be true because his prophecy of his return did occur how and when it said it would. You have life now. You have salvation now. It's not a hope waited for. It's a hope realized. It's not a faith unseen, but a fact very much observed. It's important for Christians, confident Christians, to gather together and to remind each other, remember power. Imagine being of the saints that ran out of a doomed city into the hill with no money, no food, no earthly hopes, yet witnessing the salvation of their souls and the defeat of death. They truly were the happiest people to ever live on earth. That's our legacy. That's God's judgment. So when your debts get you down, your relationship takes a sour turn, a loved one dies, your car dies, your hope fades, remember Pella. You too have a fulfilled hope, a factual faith. You're not waiting for salvation that is nearer to you when you first believed. It is already accomplished. Death is powerless. The law is dead. And grace abounds. That, my friends, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, is God's past. Mighty God, Lord, we do thank you for your judgments made known. We do thank you for the scriptures, Lord, that conceal and reveal, Lord, your truth regarding judgment. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that gives us the unction, the desire, the clarity to go through these things, Lord. Lord, I pray and trust that you've been glorified through this study this evening. That the saints are encouraged and edified by your truth, Lord. And that this chart and this study that I have produced, Lord, would be edifying to the saints and that we would find ourselves grasping more and more understanding regarding your judgments. Especially your final judgment, Lord. Thank you, Lord. May we hold to that encouragement, Lord, to remember power. May we know you, Lord, as a factual, true, and faithful God. You have made your judgments known, Lord. Your people carry your judgments. May we walk worthy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's see how I came out. Your people carry your judgments. May we walk worthy. 